2: And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
2: Rakuten's Big
3: Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events – and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
1: This is the Ion Travel podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. It's a story that's changing direction and intensity every day. The ongoing struggles of the cruise ship industry to sail again in U.S. waters. And it pits the cruise lines against the Centers for Disease Control. While the CDC did lift its no-sail order last November, it replaced it with a conditional sail order requiring the cruise lines to comply with more than 70 design, technical, and procedural changes. The cruise lines claim they've done all that, but the CDC has not lifted that conditional sail order. In the process, the cruise lines are now playing hardball, in many cases, moving their ships out of U.S. ports entirely and the jurisdiction of the CDC, and starting to sail within the next two months. I'll talk with Kelly Craighead, CEO of CLIA, that's the Cruise Lines International Association, representing a majority of the cruise lines around the world, about the situation, and of course, about what it means to you.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Kelly, this is a great opportunity for us to do a serious catch-up to go back and look about where everything was a year ago and, of course, bring us all the way through to today. So let's start with a year ago. It was not a happy time in the travel industry. It was not a happy time in the world. Uh, the optics in terms of the cruise industry were pretty intense. Uh, almost indelible images of cruise ships quarantined in, in Tokyo or actually in Yokohama, of cruise ships being unable to disgorge their passengers in other ports, uh, other problems in Australia with other ships. Uh, those were indelible images. And of course, shortly thereafter, uh, the cruise ship business came to a stop, not just in the United States, but globally. And, and hundreds of ships were idled. Um, and that's how much, much of, the, of the industry still remains today. But let's go back there. What did you immediately do? And what did you immediately reach out to, especially since the Centers for Disease Control issued a no-sale order, and then you had to deal with not just the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, but so many different governments around the world? Right.
2: Well, thank you so much for the question, Peter. I think you said it exactly right. Uh, a year ago, I think the whole world was in its first crisis of a, of a century, grappling with some unimaginable circumstances. So from the cruise industry perspective, we were in early symbol of what was to come to a much wider universe beyond travel and tourism and really impact the entire world. For us, we have maintained putting people first. And that is what we did from the earliest moment, working with the health authorities, following their direction, returning passengers, returning crew, returning ships at a time when the whole world was trying to understand what was happening was particularly challenging. But one of the things the cruise industry is so good at, again, is putting people first and really looking for those opportunities, even as countries and borders were shutting down, to work tirelessly to repatriate passengers and crew. And luckily, We had that opportunity to work constructively with governments to be able to return all of the passengers home and over time crew, except for those that remain on the ships that have to to be maintained. You know, we were really one of the first industries to voluntarily suspend, you know, this from the earliest days of the pandemic, uh, you could see the cruise industry was putting into practice all of the things that we've learned over the many decades about the ability to control the circumstances as best as possible on a ship. So feeling that it was the right thing to do, we voluntarily suspended. And subsequently, the CDC issued a no-sale order for all ships, which we were under then for the next seven months until they issued a conditional sale order in October.
0: And let's talk about that conditional sail order because what it required the cruise lines to do was to be in compliance with a number, may, many dozen different uh, changes, protocols, floor design changes, ventilation, boarding procedures, disembarking procedures, all of those things before they would actually then give you the green light to sail from any U.S. port.
2: Well, I, I have to tell you, it's a little bit different. So the conditional sail order is supposedly a plan for phased resumption of cruising, which is what we want And in fact, it's what has happened in other places around the world outside of the United States, which is a a highly controlled return to service using protocols that the industry has developed that, like you said, considers the entire experience from when you leave home to while you're on the ship to the excursion that you have to when you return home. We've done that productively working with governments to to ultimately find ourselves in a place where more than 400,000 passengers have sailed successfully using these protocols with fewer than 50 instances of any cases reported, which is so much lower than anything that you can find in land or any other venue. So you fast forward or reverse um, to the United States, where the conditional sale order, again, is supposed to be a phased return of service. It went into place on October 30th. So far, we've only received the instruction on the first phase, which has to do with the care of crew. And so we, are, we, we see the CSO a little bit is outdated because when that issue, that order was issued in October, it certainly didn't take into consideration how much has changed since last fall, including the introduction of vaccines. And it certainly didn't reflect the experience that the cruise industry is having in other parts of the world. And so again, I think it's this pro- these proven protocols that inf- do, as you say, Peter, take into account testing, take into account 100% testing of passengers and crew. In fact, the cruise industry was the first industry to require 100% of passengers and crew be tested. And in addition to that is this multi-layered approach that not only impacts your departure, but your time on the ship. So enhanced medical services, increased ventilation, all of the rest of the things that you see on land, including physical distancing, but also agreements with the places that we visit and the ability to have enhanced medical care on board ships. And so whereas it's been devastating to be suspended and in fact be the only industry that's currently prohibited from operating in the United States. It has given the industry an opportunity over those first early months to take the benefit of outside experts advising us on these protocols that again have proven effective even before there was a vaccine. So we are looking forward to considering how vaccines once they're widely available can be incorporated into our protocols to make them even more robust than they already are. So we do feel that it's been a long journey and we, we we really look forward to working with the Biden administration to reopening cruising in the United States so it can join some of the others around the world that, again, is finding cruising the best way to see
0: the world. Well, let's go back. Before we get to the Biden administration, let's go back to those 400,000 passengers who did cruise successfully. What were the protocols and the regimes that you followed in conjunction with those foreign governments and those regulatory authorities to allow that to happen? Right. And in
2: fact, CLIA has a COVID policy that details this in some length, but it the protocol is covered the entire cruise experience. So again, a significant amount of testing before you leave home at the pier, And for a crew to have quarantined before they arrive on the ship, for the ship to be in the best possible shape with enhanced hygiene, with increased ventilation, with increased medical capabilities. So one of the things I think few people know about cruise ships, um, particularly the bigger ones, is they have state-of-the-art medical capabilities. They have even more of that now. And that's what you saw this summer and and through this year is enhanced medical capabilities paired with what you would see on land in terms of mask wearing, hand washing, physical distancing, increased ventilation. But then it's, it's important to understand also that the experience of cruising is in engaging around your itinerary and the shore excursion. So working in partnership with the ports, with the destinations to have matching protocols and to enforce those protocols. It's one thing to have them. It's another thing to enforce them. And it's the enforcement and it's the responsibility of the passengers and the responsibility of the operators both on the ship and on the land to to create this um, experience where you mitigate the risk of COVID as much as possible. And that's where we've seen real success. And again, the incidence rate that has been reported on the sailings that have taken place since last summer are significantly lower than anything that we've seen on land or in any other venue. So we're pleased with the protocols and they'll continue to evolve and adapt as the situation evolves and adapts. And so we look forward to having more and more sailings because, again, it is a phased return to service. It's not a light switch. We're not going to go from on to, from off to on. It's more like a dimmer. And, and in that respect, we do see it getting lighter every day.
0: Well, towards that end, the reality in the U.S. right now is there are no U.S. cruise ships of any size that are sailing from any U.S. ports or to any U.S. ports. Canada has closed their ports effectively through February of 2022. So there's no Alaska summer cruise season. There's no New England fall foliage season, uh, just like there was not one last year as well. So that part of it- No spring
2: break. Yep. So that
0: part of it, we know. Uh, there are calls, of course, coming from from the cruise lines, as well as the governor of Florida, to to, to ask the CDC to accelerate their decision-making to allow you to go back in that phased-in program with U.S. ports. But the reality is we're now in April, and people don't decide to go on a cruise ship the day before. Cruise ships don't just miraculously show up at a at a port the day before. So we're really dealing four or five months down the road at the very earliest, even if they were to open the ports. So so let's talk about what some of the cruise lines have done to still perform to the protocols that you want, but not necessarily in U.S. ports. You have uh, cruise lines like Crystal, you have cruise lines like Royal Caribbean and Celebrity that are physically repositioning their ships right now and taking them to make them home ported ships, meaning they are going to start there and end there in countries like Bermuda, the Bahamas, uh, St. Lucia, and as far away as Israel. Uh, and they can then people will no longer be able to drive to their port cities from the United States, but they can certainly fly there. And those cruise ships are selling out their cabins now.
2: That's right. You have it exactly right. I think the obviously our first choice, our sincere hope is that we'll be able to resume operations from the United States. North America is the largest cruise market in the world. Americans love cruising as much as almost anybody else in the world. And the ability for Americans who, after such a long and enduring year are eager to get out and to be in the outdoors and have the fresh air and to take a cruise to to really be able to to have their experience facilitated in a way that is both safe and so enjoyable is is driving this demand to get on a ship. And if we can't operate from the United States, clearly there are other places who welcome the opportunity to, to be a home port where people make that a destination. They spend extra days there. They spend extra money there. And what's heartbreaking to see is that most of these um, itineraries are going to involve Americans having to go through Miami anyway to get there. So that's why we really want to work with the Biden administration and with the CDC, because again, the world has changed greatly since the original order was issued. Clearly, the state of the public health in the United States is vastly different. We look at at the environment around us, we we understand that all adults that are will be eligible to receive the vaccine in the United States by early May, some, some indications by the end of this month. We understand that there is a desire to be closer to normal in July. We find it hard to believe that the U.S. could be closer to normal if our longshoremen are not working, if our port operators are not working, if the people who grow and sell flowers are not able to deliver them to cruise ships. You know, this is really a matter of, of working with the administration to have them understand that we are an industry that is currently prohibited from operating, that we do have a proven track record, that the conditions have changed and we should be like other travel and tourism as we try to get in that same alignment um, with trying to reopen by early summer. But as you said, Peter, you know, unlike some of these other venues and um, experiences that you can have, have. Cruise ships take time and the protocols that we have in place are complex. And so having ships in the arena, having crew, having the ability to execute against Um, Kind of all of the protocols takes about 75, 90 days, which is why we've called for the CSO to be lifted, because we'd like to be in a position, we'd like to have the certainty in May that we'll be able to operate in July, because it's with that certainty that all these jobs can come back. And it's with the confidence that we have mitigated the risk of COVID as much, if not more than any other industry sector. So we really do see this as a great opportunity to demonstrate that you can do both that you can provide for public health, and you can be a bridge to economic recovery. So we look forward to being part of that good
0: news story. Well, you both you brought up the two big issues here, public health issue and economic impact. From a, from a public health issue, it's essentially non-negotiable. You're either ready or you're not ready. And, and so the question is, based on all the months that you guys have been working now to re- basically redesign protocol, behaviors, physical design, are you ready?
2: we are ready. We are ready, we are set, and we want to sail.
0: Now, having said that, we're now getting into politics, economic impact, the governor of Florida calling for it as well. Of course, that raises issues of jurisdiction and an ability to make those kind of rules. Where do we stand now? Because the last I heard uh, as part of the conditional sale order, you had to do a mock cruise with crew. You had to do a mock cruise with, with volunteer passengers. I remember, speaking of pent-up demand, that when Royal Caribbean put out a notice that they were planning on doing these mock cruises to be able to basically comply with the CDC rules, and they are asking for volunteer passengers, hundreds of thousands of people said, take me, I'm ready, let's go. Right, uh, right. But those cruises have not happened yet. Right, that's right. Well, part of it,
2: um, as I said earlier, the issue is ordered at the the end of October. It was designed to be a phased resumption that included four phases. Some of those phases included test sailings. It's been five months since that was issued. We have had significant uh, sailings in other parts testing and proving that the protocols work. So part of getting back onto the, onto the water in the U.S. is really looking at what's old news and what's new news. So we do have a plan that has proven effective around how we have enhanced protocols. Like with every other government that we're working with in the world, we'd love to have the opportunity to introduce ourselves to the Biden administration, to be given the opportunity to be treated like other travel and tourism segments and work with them on the issues that they may have, knowing that these test sailings, in fact, have already happened. They've had test sailings, they've had passenger sailings, all of them that have uh, operated under the CLIA member policy have so far operated very successfully, which is the important part that we're trying to address, which is this is mitigating risk. This is putting as as much effort as we can in the middle of a a health emergency that is going to give you the confidence that from the time you leave home to the time you're on the ship, that you are going to have the least risk that can exist while we're in the middle of a situation like this.
0: We know that Canadians closed their ports last year, And when it came to a decision time this year, they extended it for another year. And because of of an old piece of legislation dating back to the 1800s, no ship not registered in the U.S. can go between two U.S. ports without stopping in a foreign port first. I failed geography in high school, but looking at the map, you can't get to Alaska from, from mainland United States without stopping in Canada. And therefore, if you can't stop in Canada, you can't get to Alaska. So that really wiped out your cruise season to Alaska for two years in a row.
2: Well, it's it's true that um, between the, the pace with which we're working with the CDC and the decision by the Canadians contributed to the fact that Alaska is gonna lose another cruise season. And for communities, like those communities in Alaska that are dependent on the cruise industry to be able to deliver passengers you know they're losing nearly a billion dollars 800 million of that is in cruise passenger uh, receipts and so you can see the crippling impact by potentially losing another season and this you know Peter you know this is the impact on real people this is about people losing their tax base so that they don't have schools and hospitals. This is, I mean, this is real life stuff. It makes a huge difference. And I think certainly the Alaskans have been terrific supporters of the industry and are trying to work with the administration to understand and help put us on a path to be like the other travel and tourism industries, because this is the... We are now at the place trying to come out of this pandemic, um, as well as we can, that is hyper-dependent on cruise tourism being
0: part of the travel and tourism
2: ecosystem.
0: Of course, I have to go back to the optics. And the optics for so many people are that cruise cruise ships are like floating Petri dishes or that uh, I have friends of mine who have never taken a cruise, but the first words out of their mouth if I talk to them about cruising is, you couldn't pay me to go on one of those. That's their impression, right? And yet, two things are happening at the same time number one, an average of 2.5 million Americans are being vaccinated every day. And by the way, that's, that number is only getting higher. Last week, I think it hit 3.5 million on one day. Uh, if you do, if you look at it by month, that's over 30 million a month. And that's and that's compounded. It's getting more and more. That's number one. Number two, we're talking about a vaccination passport. I that's, that's one of the things that's being discussed, that it will be your ticket of admission, whether you want to go to a movie theater or a theme park or the grocery store or a cruise ship. We're seeing number of your member cruise lines when they're homeporting these ships in different countries saying the requirement's going to be our crew's going to be vaccinated, our officers are going to be vaccinated, and if you want to be a passenger on the ship, you have to show proof of vaccination. So I tell everybody this is the irony because here we are coming from the original optics about what cruising was perceived to be. Here we're going to have a ship or ships with 100% vaccination compliance, which will probably be the safest places to be in the world. Right. Well, you know, clearly, as you
2: said, uh, as more and more people become vaccinated, it really becomes a game changer for the whole wide world. And that will be the case for cruise ships as well. One of the challenges, of course, is the the av- availability of vaccines. And so as we see more countries have more access and more successful rollout of the vaccines, like we've seen in the United States, you can see how the whole world gets lifted up by vaccines. And in the meantime, you know, for for the cruise industry, it's not—it is not the single silver bullet that solves it all. Because, of course, we've—we have to have this multi-layered approach. There's a lot of reasons why pro, the um, vaccines won't be 100% effective. Whether it's because five percent of the those vaccinated for whom it does not work, for children that may not be vaccinated. And so for for us, it's really to work with the governments to meet them where they're at, where their comfort level is. And of course, when the vaccines are widely available, you've already seen the cruise industry take a leadership role in developing enhanced health and safety protocols that you can imagine will involve vaccinations. And for those smaller ships that are able to do that now, it is certainly good um, for us to be able to point to all the possibilities so we do we do think that it's important to recognize in the United States that there are lots of ways to cruise and cruisers love to cruise. And, and we've seen by the demand, the overwhelming demand that people are ready to cruise, whether they're required to be vaccinated or not. And the good news is, is that whether you're vaccinated or not, we do have protocols in place right now that can mitigate the risk more than any anything that we're seeing on land. So again, I go back to the place where it's not a light switch, it's a dimmer and that dimmer is growing And it's getting lighter every day because the world is changing so quickly. And the ability to really disprove some of these misperceptions because we were an unfortunate symbol of the early days of the pandemic when the whole wide world was learning about something brand new. We've really been able to benefit from this last year in, in understanding how we can do this better. And the cruise industry has always been a leader in our ability to put people first. And this is just another example of how we'll get back on track and we'll, we'll go back to that trajectory where we have to attract those people who are dubious about cruising because they have the misperceptions of it. And that's what I'm looking forward to getting back to do. Because as you know, Peter, cruising takes all shapes and forms And there are all kinds of products out there to meet the different needs of different people. So whether you want a small luxury experience, whether you want a big um, kind of multi-generational experience so that your grandparents and the parents and the kids can have an experience. There really is something out there for everyone. And what's, what is consistent across all of these different products is the adherence to putting people first and the incredibly robust protocols that exist to protect for health and safety, particularly for our members who have to sign to agree to implement these policies um, that again, are going to adapt and evolve as it relates to COVID. But you, can always trust that they will be leading the pack um, compared to anybody else.
0: You know, then there's, of course, the consumer element itself. You mentioned the increase in demand. I reported on this two weeks ago, and then I reported on a similar situation just this week, where one cruise line put on its world cruise for 2022. And it sold out in like a day where the minimum cabin price was something like $40,000. Yeah. Uh, and then just a couple of days ago, uh, Sea put on their cruise for 2023, one of their grand tours, where the minimum cabin price was $74,000 and it sold out. So if there was ever any any question about consumer demand or price point, that just went out the window. Right.
2: Demand is not going to be the issue. The issue is, is working with the many destinations around the world to work work with the health authorities to give the assurances that they need to feel like they're providing for their citizens. We are trying to provide for our passengers and crew and their citizens. And so we've seen really good luck in the kind of partnership that we've seen in other parts of the world because so example, it does—it really does take everybody to make sure that, again, first and foremost, it's about the public health. And that's why we feel so confident that we're, we're moving in the right direction.
0: So, for example, in Greece, which is a huge destination for cruise ships. You've already worked with their government to be able to get ready to get ready. Uh, You've done that in Croatia. You've done that uh, in Italy. And even though Italy right now may be in lockdown, they're ready for you now uh, when you're ready to go.
2: That's right. I mean, it really, you know, you know this, Peter, because you're such an expert in all forms travel. And tourism. Um, you know, for, for places where cruising is an important part of their tourism economy. And remember that there are many places, whether it's Alaska, whether it's the Caribbean, in fact, even if it's in Greece, that airlines alone can't get you there. So, what is so unique about cruising is that you can go to places that you otherwise couldn't get to. And so in places like Greece and like the Caribbean and like Alaska, they have developed good and strong working relationships with the cruise industry so that we can work together in partnership to address both their needs and our needs in a way that, again, results in a positive experience for everybody. You know, it was working with EU Healthy Gateways and EMSA last summer where they were able to put out an initial framework that really enabled us to then match our protocols and to work together to be in a place where now we can see the UK, um, who you didn't mention, who has put crews in the same wave as other travel and tourism industries, so that when domestic tourism resumes, cruising with domestic passengers will be part of that. As they work towards opening international tourism, we're working towards crews being part of that. And when we come back to the United States, we're looking for the same thing. We know that there are many of our colleagues in travel and tourism are looking to open international inbound. We are looking to be part of that if you think about how, um, you know, the desperate needs of communities, one of the interesting things, and I'd love one day for us to talk about this, Peter, is I think neighborhoods and communities and cities who never considered themselves really part of the travel and tourism economy have discovered, in fact, that travel and tourism is important to their neighborhood, to their community, and just the number of jobs that are affected by travel and tourism, and how that extends to the cruise industry. So for me, I'm really looking forward to being able to use some of these examples of success of the partnership between the public and the private sector to arrive at outcomes that make health officials feel comfortable that they're providing for their their citizenry, um, because that is that really is the opportunity. It's the invitation that we make in the United States is to, again, work in partnership to both point to what we've proven we can do successfully since the pandemic broke out, but also to realize the changed environment in which we're living. I mean, you said it. I think, um, you know, we've heard Dr. Fauci and others talk about the fact that the rate of vaccination is so great in the United States that there's some confidence that you can stay ahead of the variants. You know, there's not a single person in the cruise industry that wants to start before people are ready to start. And I think that with our protocols and what we know about the current landscape, we're ready to sail. So we look forward to having that opportunity and we need to get the word. Um, We'd like to have it in May because we'd like to be operating this summer like everybody else. But most importantly, it's the certainty. You know, no one can come back to work until we know for sure we'll be able to operate. And what we're really working for is people who were most deeply impacted by this suspension. And their stories are the stories that we're trying to tell because it really is about the people, not about ships, but the people who really benefit, not just as the cruisers, but the people who support cruising. So
0: we're hopeful, Peter. Kelly Craighead, the head of CLIA. Kelly, thank you so much for
2: joining me. Thanks for having me. It's terrific. I appreciate it.
0: My thanks to Kelly. Next up, thinking of traveling to Hawaii, it's my extended conversation with a legendary writer, author of the Old Patagonian Express, The Mosquito Coast, My Secret Life, and his most recent book, Under the Wave at Waimea. It's a deep and intimate look at the Hawaii surf culture and in the process, Hawaii itself. And if anybody knows the difference between a tourist and a traveler, it's Paul Thoreau. I want to start by talking about a definition of a term which I take issue with, and that term is travel writer. To me, it, it still has sort of a negative connotation because there are very few writers who are really good at travel, and the other people are, are travel writers. Uh, my next guest is really good at, at writing, and he's really good at travel. In fact, he's legendary. Uh, he's written everything from the Mosquito Coast to uh, the Railway Bazaar, the Dark Star Safari, On the Plane of Snakes. His new book, basically from where he actually lives right now, under the wave at Waimea, his name, if you haven't figured it out by now, is Paul Thoreau. Paul, welcome to the show.
3: Peter, lovely to talk to you again. And aloha from the
0: Ah, you you had to get the aloha and I know you did. <laughs> We're gonna get back to aloha in a second because I want to go back to what I said in the introduction, Paul, about the definition of terms of the word travel writer. Because to me, you happen to be an amazing writer who also travels and I think there's a difference and then when you get to a destination it's really about storytelling and it's not just a destination um, I've always said the destination should, should be incidental to the experience uh, in your situation uh, you're already telling us about a sense of place you're already telling us about a history of something way before we ever realized how different it really might be and in this new book, uh, which, by the way, I have to, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to tell everybody, you just celebrated your 80th birthday. Can I say that? Oh, wait a minute. I just did. <laughs> uh, you really are talking about, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, it's, it's a novel about a sort of an aging 60-plus surfer, a legend surfer, uh, and you give him a name, Joe Sharkey, which I love that name, by the way, because Joe Sharkey, the, I know a Joe Sharkey. He wrote the travel column in the New York Times for years. Um, But for me, uh, and many of my listeners may not know this, I come from a surfing family. And my relatives are Hawaiian. So I had particular interest in reading this book because uh, my uncle was a surfing champion. He was a legendary surfing champion. He's in the Surfing Hall of Fame, but he made his mark surfing the beaches in Hawaii. Um, And on those days... The boards were not the boards of today. They were wooden, they were mahogany, they weighed 140 pounds, they were, they were long boards that were about 14 feet long. I have no idea how I ever carried them when I was a kid. Um, and they had no skeg, right? You went where the waves took you, you couldn't cut. Uh, and this is someone in your book who probably grew up with those kind of boards
3: and is still surfing today. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, I didn't realize that you uh, you had uh, surfers in your ancestry. That's that's really interesting. Um, well, th- th- the book is about an, an older surfer. It, 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 he's he's and he's a legend, as you say. He's the shark. I'd always wanted to write about surfing because I live on the north shore of Oahu and I live among surfers. I talk to surfers. I paddle a canoe, uh, an outrigger canoe, and sometimes I can surf a very small wave with my canoe. But I live in a kind of water world and that's the world um, that I wanted to write about. I've been working on the book a lot. Actually, I started about eight years ago and it was interrupted mainly by, there there was a certain xenophobic head of state here who began to disparage Mexicans. So in the middle of writing the book, I decided to write a book about Mexico, and um, then I finished Under the Wave at Waimea, which is the title of the, of the book. Did you want to talk about... Well, what I, what
0: I really want to talk about is how you get into a story like this, because when you talk about surfing, you're really talking about a, a culture, and you're even talking about a language. You know, you talk about Under the Wave at Waimea. Well, in Hawaii, there's legend and there's myth, and everything has a name. You know, when, when people in Hawaii say they want to talk story, they're not kidding. And, right, every wave has a name.
3: That's right. Every break has a name. That's absolutely true. And a surfer knows the island not by towns. They wouldn't say, well, he lives in Haleiwa or he lives in Waialua or Mokulaia, which are towns or small communities. He would say he lives at Rocky Point. He lives at, at Belzeeland. He lives at Chun's Reef. He lives at Lani's. He lives at Puena Point. Which are specific waves. He lives at Pipeline, they would say, or he lives just near Pipeline. He lives near Sunset. All, and I think this is probably true in California, where you are now. I mean, I think that people would would refer to the um, the surf break surf, a surfer anyway would reserve re, would refer to the surf break as a as a destination or as a place. And the the water is a place. If you live in an archipelago like Hawaii. With a bunch of islands, um, you're, the, the, the land. I mean, for example, the Kaibi Channel runs between Molokai and Oahu. That's where a lot of canoeists, uh, people with canoes like myself, that's where they they paddle and there's a certain race. So the sea, the sea has a name. Places on the sea have a name. It's not just water out there. It's it's a specific type of waters. But, and that's the other thing is it's a type of wave. So the wave at Pipeline is different from the wave um, at Paloina Point.
0: Oh, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. In fact, I made a mistake once. I will tell you this. I learned how to surf in, in Sandy Beach. Um, and and I, I survived that. And that gave me a false sense of confidence. And all my relatives are Hawaiian. They took me to the North Shore where you live. And they took me over to Sunset. And I rode one wave and one wave only. <laughs> and you know, I grew up in New York, and if you surf in New York, which I did out on Fire Island, if you if you fall off the board, yeah, you get creamed, and then you stay down for about twenty seconds, and you you pop up. Uh, if you are in Hawaii at sunset and you fall off the board or get creamed, the waves are basically saying to you, "You're not coming up," <laughs> and and. You, and then it throws you onto the beach like some beached mammal and, and with sand in every crevice of your body. And you say to yourself at that point, the gods have sent me a message and the message is don't go back. You can watch, but you can't go back. And that was my first and last
3: experience at sunset. <laughs> but you know it because those are crazy waves. They're very, very big waves. And, and Pipeline has a very big wave. Not only that, but um, Pipeline is famous for having a reef that's... Kind of a shallow reef. So if you dumped, get dumped in the wave, you're likely to do a, what they call a face plant on the roof and on the reef, and you could seriously injure yourself. People die. I mean, very experienced surfers die. Um, it, it, Waimea, for example, which has a very big wave, drownings are not uncommon. They're not uncommon, even among pretty experienced surfers. So, as a subject for a book, I mean, you can see there's nothing better. We've been speaking with Paul Thoreau, novelist,
0: it says here, travel writer. I'm, we're going to get back on that. Uh, and the author of Under the Wave at Waimea. Paul, the question I asked right before we went on the break is, for a period of about a year, for many people, maybe even 14 months for more people, uh, nobody was traveling. Uh, you weren't traveling, but you weren't, like, sitting around.
3: No, as a matter of fact, I did travel. I, I um I spent the summer in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where I spend most summers, and virtually every weekend I drove up to Maine, to the Maine coast, um, where we have a weekend place, and uh, spent time on the road. The, the, the traffic was a lot lighter than, than normal, and that was, so I, was, I, did, I didn't feel confined at all. And then at the end of November, around Thanksgiving, I drove from Cape Cod to Pasadena, California, 3,000 miles, I did it in six days, five hundred miles a day, staying staying in motels. Um, that was just, that was a road trip just to see what the country looked like in, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And and what did you see? And what did you see from that? What did you learn from that? Motels were very empty. I mean, you go going and you say, "Do you have a room?" They say, "We've got you know two hundred rooms." Uh, so uh, I brought my own food. Uh, what I learned was that there are some places that were very, very um, indifferent to wearing masks. I mean, places in Arkansas and Texas, Oklahoma, uh, where they're kind of defiant. You know, we don't need a mask. We're okay. We're healthy. Uh, and other places, they were very fastidious about it. The restaurants were closed, as I say, uh, but I found the trip amazing. First, there wasn't much traffic. There's a lot, there, there were a lot of big, you know, 18-wheelers. The, truck, the trucks that go cross-country, as you know, that's a whole culture of driving. And There were plenty of trucks on the road, but very few. Cause even the day before thanksgiving i i drove from cape cod to virginia that my first 500 miles and although that's one of the busiest travel days of the year it wasn't bad it, it was it wasn't bad at all next day i got to nashville and that was very light that was thanksgiving itself i had my thanksgiving at a rest stop but what i found out was it's a beautiful country and people should you know when this pandemic even now I suppose you could do it get in your car and go somewhere you don't need to go to Istanbul you don't need to go to Bangkok you don't need to go to South America this is the greatest country in the world we have the greatest landscape and we have the confidence that wherever you go in the United States without exception almost at the end of the day you're going to find a place to stay it might not be grand but it'll be good and there'll be a place to eat and you have that confidence. You don't have to. You can wing it. You can improvise a road trip in the States and see mountains as high as most that you'd find in the world. Uh, nice people. Good food. Desert. I mean, I, such spectacular beauty. And that's what I was continually reminded of. What a wonderful place it is that we live, that we, where where you can travel. And, I mean, I'm in Hawaii now. So I got to la and i got tested for the virus and i was negative so i i flew to hawaii but you can drive anyway anyway i had so that was my my pandemic has never been very very severe on me i've locked been locked down as a writer i mean i stay home writing most of the time i and when i've traveled i usually travel in the winter this year i was planning to go to africa i didn't go i wasn't that sad about it i you know i my wife and I have spent more time together than, than ever. We had a great time. We did a lot of cooking. So it hasn't been a punishment for me. For a lot of people, but, it has yeah. been, uh, it's been uh, really, really bad. I mean, hard. They, could, they couldn't commute to work. They're working at home. So I'm not minimizing that. I'm only saying that, that in terms of travel, there's a lot of travel that, that can be done without leaving the country.
0: Exactly. And what we're seeing now, of course, is America, whether they like it or not, whether they planned it or not, uh, whether they intended to do it or not, are actually at a point now where they can rediscover their own country.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's true. And, um, and there's some dramatic things. I mean, there, there, um, there are places that were new to me. I mean, I wrote a book about traveling through the South, deep South, uh, and I, I thought I knew the South. Well, on this trip, I took a slightly different route through the South and I discovered new places. Um, I wrote a book about Mexico on the Plain of Snakes. I'd spent a lot of time on the border and so, and in Texas. But this time I went through North Texas, Amarillo. And um, it, it was, that was all new to me too. I mean, I was on I-40 and um, I stopped at Amarillo actually and, and, and looked around. I saw a part of Texas and I saw there's a huge canyon in in, in, uh, in the panhandle. It, almost as big as, as, uh, as Grand Canyon. It's the second largest canyon in the United States. I had no... I had known that it existed. I looked at that. So there's a lot. To, even if you if you do have done a lot of traveling, there's and you think you know it, there's much more to see.
0: You're right, and you should never take anything for granted. But I want to go back to your writing because your approach to writing from a physical point of view is something that I do myself. You're writing a lot in longhand. You're writing on a pad of paper. You're not you're not using a computer.
3: No, I don't. I don't. Well, I use a computer to do a final draft. Uh, I type. But I, my first draft is always written by hand. Um, and that's the way I've done it. I mean, it worked for me when I was young. And um, it's a way, uh, particularly in fiction, uh, I need to slow down and write. And if something's if, if there's something's unsatisfactory about it, I rewrite it. I, I, I sit down and I recopy it. People think that's laborious. Well, writing is laborious. Writing is difficult. If I had a column for a newspaper, I might sit at a at a computer and write the column uh, that's a different kind of writing but the the, the the thought and the density that goes into fiction writing the kind of uh, I don't know the kind of reflection that you need is you can't write it fast no one can write fiction fast I don't know anyone that ever has done that uh, so it, it's slow it's laborious but you get results doing it the way I do. and
0: and fiction or not You're writing a book against a backdrop of reality about a destination that you're learning more and more about every single day. So I guess the question is, what did you learn about Hawaii in the process of writing this book?
3: I learned a lot, actually. I've I've lived here more than 30 years, and I didn't dare to write about it uh, for the first 10 years uh, through the 1990s. I wrote a book about the Pacific, the Happy Isles of Oceania, and and I wrote a little bit about Hawaii, but I didn't know it then. Hawaii is a very, very difficult place to know, to know intimately. You think you know it. You're having a Mai Tai in Waikiki. <laughs> you think you, you that's the essence of it. And it's a lovely experience. But there's so much more. There are subcultures here. Every part of this island I'm, that I'm on, Oahu, has a different climate, has a microclimate, has a different ethnic identity. I mean, up the, up the road is Laie. It's mostly Mormons. Down the road is Waipahu, another town, mostly people of Filipino extract, Uh, out of, you know, Kahala's wealthy people, Waianae mostly local people, I mean, of Hawaiian ancestry. So to get to know the different places, (laughs) the the longer you live in a place, uh, the more you realize how how complex it is and the hardest place to write about. Your listeners may we'll understand this is where you come from. It's your home. You can it's not hard to write about Bangkok. You're writing about a surface. You're write about temples and gongs and flowers and people and and the canals and all that. And so, so you go there and you think, Well, you write about Bangkok. But try to write about your hometown. Wherever it might be Wellesley, Massachusetts, Dubuque, Iowa, you know, Brooklyn, wherever it might be. It's really, really hard. So I live here now, and as I've lived here. So around 1998, uh, 99, I wrote a book called Hotel Honolulu. And that was a book that is mainly about the city of Honolulu, and particularly Waikiki. So Hotel Honolulu was my sort of urban book. But then I moved to the country, what they call the country here, the North Shore, which is basically a, um, a surfing culture of people, people located near the water. And I got to know it, and it. I realized it's a place all its own. It's a different culture. You pointed out earlier, a different language, a different ethic, different ways of looking at the world. And and I must say, surfing is not about money. People surf for love, for pleasure, for joy. They don't. The, the few surfers who have endorsements are lucky. You can hear my. Can you hear my chicken?
0: I was about to ask that. Yes, we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs>
3: I have ch- chickens running wild. Um, they do. They commit. They nest and they lay eggs, and I have lovely omelets from them. <laughs> and I also have five very big, very noisy geese. They're nice and quiet. I fed them before I, I, I started talking to you, so they're very contentedly nibbling at uh, at pellets. But I, I live in the country, uh, and they, you know, chickens are very good. They they eat they eat bugs, and they and the geese. Are there any other Are there any other animals we need to know about? I don't. The other animals that 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 you might find on my property uh, are wild pigs, uh, of which there are occasionally four or five. Some of them very big, and that's a problem. That's a problem. But we have ways of dealing with the wild pigs. <laughs> we often turn them into um, smoked chili, but very delicious. <laughs> But but lately I, they've they've wandered away it's been very dry, so they're, they're somewhere else at the moment well
0: good. they've they've avoided the uh the transformation into dry chili I got it
3: but yeah yeah
0: but now you're
3: about to travel again i hope I'm looking forward to traveling but i I'm, I'm when the when the pandemic began, I started to write a book a novel exactly a year ago last April. I thought well I'm not going anywhere uh, I need something constructive to do I started to write a short story the story became. Much longer, and now it's a novella. I'm a, a novel. I'm still working on it. So that's that's my activity. I mean, I work at home. I go to the beach. I sometimes work at the beach. The beaches are open here. You know, Hawaii is open for business. So plenty of people around. The hotels about half full. Suppose you can get a good as a, a travel man yourself, you can get a deal on a hotel here now.
0: Although, I, although I should tell you, Paul, uh, the numbers of arrivals in Hawaii is going up by the hour. Uh, in Maui alone today over 6400 arrivals so the hotel occupancies are going up and as you've been reading in, the, in in the papers in Hawaii and as we were monitoring it from here you can't even find a rental car in Hawaii um, it's it's a little crazy
3: yeah that's that, that's true it's 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 completely turned around although you need a you need a test to come here um and um, there are uh, certain other restrictions that, uh, because uh, the restaurants aren't completely open. But I must say it's a lovely place to live and to write about. But as I was saying earlier, it's very difficult to write about a place that you live in. And it took me, it's taken me 30 years actually to to uh, publish this book or to get this book, which I think is, you know, inside Hawaii. It's, a, it's the life of, 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 it's the surfing life. Uh, it's not a travel book, but it has, the landscape and uh, the people of, from Hawaii.
0: And are you still paddling? Are you still canoeing?
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I Twice a week I go. Uh, there are three Hawaiian guys who are very good at it. And they have my back. I go out with them. four of us go out in an outrigger canoe, a canoe called an OC-1. So it has an outrigger on it, what they call an ama. Uh, and we go out of Haleiwa. And sometimes catch waves. Uh, they, they can take bigger waves than me. It's a lovely way to spend an afternoon, you know, paddling. Uh, and I've been doing it. You know, there's an old Phoenician belief that every day you spend on the water is not deducted from your life. So um, I'm not real. The birthday I had is, is slightly bogus. I'm really not as old as I as as numbers would say, because all the days I spent so many days on the water, they're not deducted. So years, maybe, not deducted.
0: So basically, you're a Benjamin Button. <laughs> I'm
3: probably love- in my sixty. I'm probably in my sixties.
0: Exactly. Now, when you do travel again, uh, you know people are talking about a vaccine passport, a proof of vaccination. Uh, as the world begins to open up, something tells you that's
3: going to be a requirement, one way or the other. Um, I'm assuming you've been vaccinated already. Yes. And I may say that when I first started traveling, when I went, when I went to Africa in 1963, I had a WHO yellow vaccine, which you have, I'm sure.
0: I do. I still have mine. Yes.
3: And you have to, you have to prove that you had a yellow fever shot, shot for typhus, for diphtheria, for sleeping sickness, you know, a lot of polio, whatever it was. And, and it's, it's their step that they had to be up to date. I remember I went to the Congo, um, later in the, in the mid sixties. And I, I was in Katanga and I got off the plane and they said, where's your, where's your health card? And I said, "I, it's here. And they said, well, you don't have whatever jab it was. I can't remember. It might've been yellow fever. And they said, you have to go straight to the hospital and get that jab before we, uh, before you can circulate here in the Congo. And I think that's going to be standard in the future. Oh, they'll say, where's your, it, it, I I have a little car that resembles it because I've had two jabs myself, two vaccinations of Moderna, and I'm sure that will be a requirement. You get off a plane in Bangkok or or wherever, Delhi, and they'll say, where's the car? Yeah, here's your passport. Where's your card? They'll examine it. They'll look at the date and they'll say, "Okay, you can go. And If you don't have it, I don't know what will happen. Maybe you'll get a jab then or maybe they'll put you back on the plane.
0: (laughs) Well, something tells me you'll have that figured out. And, and the technology will be there with, a, with sort of like a centralized set of standards to make that work. Or if worse comes to worse, you just bring the rooster. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think they'd welcome my noisy rooster. I'm, 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 I'm,
0: I'm. My thanks to Paul. And my thanks to Kelly Craighead. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and as you know, that's happening multiple times every day, be sure to log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at
0: clearme.com Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide.